1: and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has
0: experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed
2: Welcome to New Books in Medicine. I'm your host, Dana Greenfield. Today, our guest is Adam Tanner. He's a journalist and writer in residence at Harvard University's Institute for Quantitative Social Science, and an expert on the business of personal data and privacy. I spoke with him about his latest book, Our Bodies, Our Data, How Companies Make Billions Selling Our Medical Records. Reading this book, I learned a lot about the huge and somewhat hidden trade in patient information that we participate in every time we interact with the medical system. I work in medicine and I knew a little bit about this. For example, how pharmaceutical companies gather data on prescribing habits. But after reading this book, I realized now that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's a fascinating and important story, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hi everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine. I'm Dana Greenfield, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be speaking with Adam Tanner about his new book, Our Bodies, Our Data, How Companies Make Billions Selling Our Medical Records. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the show.
3: Great to be here. Thank you.
2: I was wondering if we could begin the interview with you telling us a little bit about yourself.
3: So most of my career, I have been an investigative reporter and journalist I was a foreign correspondent for many years. I lived in Russia and Germany and Serbia and other places. But in recent years, I have been in the academic world. I have been a fellow at Harvard University and writer in residence since 2011. And it's there that I researched uh, two books on the business of personal data. That's the information that companies gather about us all and use for commercial purposes. Interestingly, the... The experience that I had as a foreign correspondent and as an investigative reporter were very useful to understand this because the companies that gather information about us are very secretive. They would prefer to gather information about us for marketing and sales purposes without being too specific about what they do, by being rather secretive. And so the experience that I had covering Russia and the Kremlin for five years, for example, has been very useful in my research, uh, including my last book on the business of medical data, because to to probe into it and to, to find out the stories and how this works and how uh, different people are operating in this market, I've had to use those techniques perfected in Serbia and Russia and Germany and other places as a, a foreign correspondent. So that's a little bit of my
2: background. So that seems like a big shift. Um, and what prompted you to want to investigate uh, the collection of personal data that is undertaken by large corporations.
3: So throughout my career, I've spent a lot of time looking at the uh, former Soviet uh, Union and former communist world. In my earliest uh, efforts as a as a writer, I was writing guidebooks for former's guidebooks, and in 1988, I was um, trailed at one point by the Stasi, the secret agents in East Germany, and I had a sixty plus page file about everything I did on a particular day in Dresden, East Germany. Uh, Thinking about what the Stasi knew about me, these very efficient secret police at the time during the last year of communism before the fall of the Berlin Wall, I realized that what these state organs knew about me was very small compared to what uh, companies today, commercial companies, big well-known ones and also ones that you may never have heard of, what they know about us all. So I thought that would be an interesting realm of research. And my experience maybe in the world in which governments gathered a lot of data led me to lead about, into this question of what do companies gather about us? What do they do with this intimate information that they can know about us in the internet era? So that's how the world of my foreign correspondent work and my past living abroad and this world of personal data are linked up.
2: That's really fascinating. Um, So, your first book was called What Stays in Vegas uh, The World of Personal Data, Lifeblood of Big Business, and the End of Privacy as We Know It. Um, And I'm wondering how you went from looking at the threat to privacy from the increasing collection of personal data by large corporations for marketing purposes um, to wanting to understand um, similar practices in the medical field.
3: So in my first book, What Stays in Vegas, that book uh, has a lot of setting in Vegas to understand how casinos are very sophisticated in gathering information about us, Uh, but it gives people a choice. You can choose whether or not to join the loyalty programs in casinos. If you do join the programs, they will know a great deal about you, but they will give you rewards such as free rooms, free food, uh, different access uh, to different programs. Initially, I thought, well, it would be interesting to put a chapter in that book about medical data, because that book is not only about Las Vegas, it's about the wider commercial gathering of non-medical information. I thought, well, one chapter on medical, because there could be a sale of medical data, uh, would be interesting. However, the topic of what goes on with our uh, health information is so complicated, both to understand and to make into a gripping narrative story. That I put that aside and I devoted another two years to writing this latest book, Our Bodies, Our Data. And that's, um, that's the result. That's why I needed a separate book. And it is a complicated story, but it's very compelling. And there's interesting different debates and um, arguments about what is good and what is bad about this uh, that I uncover.
2: Yeah. So let's, let's get into that. Um, it is a really complex story. And um You describe this ecosystem of people who are collecting data, who are brokering and repackaging and selling that data, and then other companies or stakeholders who are consuming that data for a variety of purposes. Um, and so I think we could start anywhere really in this ecosystem. Um, but I'd like to start, um, you know, basically where you start in the book, with some of the origin stories. Uh, And you talk a little bit about, um, first, the pharmaceutical industry and how they started to collect data um, initially. And so can you describe what were the origins of patient data collection in the pharmaceutical industry?
3: So there are big companies, uh, the biggest of which has historically been IMS Health which gather data for commercial purposes to help in the sales of marketing of drugs. Uh, IMS recently changed its name to Acuvia, just a, a short period after my book came out. And the the company started, it was an interesting story, but maybe I should step back for a moment just to set the scene as to what kind of data is set, and then I'll return to the story if, if it's okay with you. So... I visit the doctor. One visits the doctor and the door is shut and I'm talking to my doctor, Dr. Dana. Dr. Dana, here are my issues and I feel very confident telling you what my issues are because the door is closed. You are my doctor and nobody else is there. You may then send me with prescription in hand to the pharmacist and I think, oh, only the pharmacist knows what drug I'm taking. You may send me to the blood test lab and I have a blood test which may reveal some illness uh, all of this may be processed by insurance. And I'm thinking, well, this is all private information. I talked to my doctor, the pharmacist. I, I filed an insurance claim and I had a blood test. However, on every step of that journey, there is often a commercial sale. So your notes as a doctor may go through an electronic health system that sells the data to commercial outside providers. The insurers often will sell that information the blood test lab will often sell the urine test, the blood test, something that's very uh, intimate to you. Um, the pharmacist will often sell the information. It will not have your name on it. It will have your gender. It may have the year or date of birth. It will have the name of the doctor. So you, Dr. Dana, your name may be in it. Me, the patient, it's not in it, but it'll have the part of town that I live in. And all of those records over time will be gathered together and so and be sold by these commercial companies so that's the big broad overview now how all of this started uh it's really something after world war ii and the biggest of this companies that, that i was beginning to talk about ims health initially what they were doing was gathering information about what drugs sold in what markets to what proportions. So for example, drug A sells, uh, has 83% market share. In Germany, drug B has 17%. And this was used to encourage people to advertise. So if you're drug A, you've got to advertise more because you um, are the market leader and you don't want to lose your share. You're drug B, you have to advertise more because you um, have such a low share, you need to increase the market share. What happens over time with this company and others is that as medical information becomes digitized, it becomes easier to collect information about individual patients and gives a much more sophisticated view of what's going on in the market. And eventually what are, uh, what happens uh, by the 1970s and 80s is that prescription records are easily uh, sold, or much more easily sold than before. And eventually, there are profiles on individual doctors that are prepared in the United States and different levels of information prepared in other countries. This is very useful for the drug companies because they can go send a salesperson or a detailer to the the doctor and say, doctor, I see that uh, you're typically prescribing drug A. I work for company B. Let me tell you how great company B is. And depending on what point in time it was, and some of the practices have changed, the drug company representative might take the doctor out to dinner, they might uh, deliver various snacks and goods to the doctor's office as part of the sales process. So this great sophistication about gathering data on patients has allowed them uh, this incredible insight for selling. And let me give you an example just from what I was talking about before, a blood test. So... You go to the blood test lab, your doctor sends you there, say, on a Thursday. Uh, The next day, the test results are ready, and they may already be sold uh, as they're being sent to the doctor to a commercial provider. Again, the patient's name is not on that. It, It might say female, 47 years old in this part of town, has this medical condition, and she's seeing Dr. Jones. Now, that patient may only come in on Tuesday to talk uh, about the next stage of what to do with Dr. Jones, but maybe on Monday, the drug company will send a salesperson to the doctor and say, doctor, I understand you have this patient with this condition. Let us tell you about this new, wonderful drug that we have to treat that. All this happens before the patient comes in on Tuesday. Now, maybe the drug company representative really did tell them, the doctor, about a new, innovative product. Or maybe they were uh, trying to promote something that may not necessarily be the best thing. Maybe a generic is cheaper and just as effective. Maybe something else would be better. So these are different ways in which sophisticated patient level information can be used to promote sales and marketing of drugs.
2: And you discuss also in the origins of IMS in particular, the relationship to the advertising industry. So what is that relationship between um, those that are collecting this data or brokering the collection of this data and advertising? So what is
3: so interesting is that in the the very DNA of the corporate history, uh, secrecy has been baked in from the very beginning. Um, So today, if you go to the labs and say, do you sell my blood test, or if you go to the doctor and say, is my information being sold in the way that I am describing it, often they will not know or have only a very hazy idea. The nurse with the needle in hand or the doctor who's entering the notes into the system or the insurance agent that you call on the phone may not understand the vast web that I'm describing of this commercial sale. So, from the very beginning, some of the big founders of this industry were themselves quite secretive. And one man that I talk about in some depth in the book is the founder of IMS Health, uh, whose name is Ludwig Wolfgang Freulich. He was a German who came over to the United States in the 1930s, and he set up one of the big medical advertising companies uh, on Madison Avenue at that time, sometimes called Medicine Avenue, because there was so much new drug, uh, new great drugs to promote in the post-World War II period. So this guy, Froelich, and his Froelich agency was one of the two main players in medical advertising. The other was run by uh, Mr. Sackler, and the Sackler name is, is one that may ring a bell with some people, because the Sackler family was uh, generous in donating art to various museums. And there's a Sackler wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, in, in New York City. There's a Sackler wing in Cambridge and in other places in Washington, DC. So these were the two rival agencies. And uh, eventually Froelich sets up this uh, other company, IMS Health, which begins to understand market share. You should advertise because you have so much of the market you shouldn't advertise. and the two businesses work uh, hand in hand. Now, as I mentioned, Froelich himself was extremely secretive. People who worked with him did not know why he had come from the United uh, to the United States from Germany. They did not know much about his background. And in my research, I was able to show that, uh, despite what his lawyer and his, who was still alive and his best friend, who was still alive, uh, both in their eighties, uh, thought he was actually. Jewish who came uh, came over. So they said he wasn't Jewish. He was he was a Jew who hid his background. He was gay, which was quite dangerous to be in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. So he had very sound reasons for coming to the United States. He hid those aspects about his background. But most interestingly, in my research, which I came across was that he had a secret uh, relationship, business-wise, with Arthur Sackler, this main rival on Madison Avenue. So these are the two guys that should have been competing uh, vigorously. And you think of maybe a television show like Mad Men uh, competing for the various accounts to advertise medical products. But the men were secretly dividing up the business. They were working together. And secretly, they founded the company of IMS. So this was this secret arrangement from the very beginning. It only comes out for the first time in 1971, uh, Arth, um, so, so Froelich, the founder of IMS, he dies, Uh, the next year the company goes public, and they realize that Sackler's uh, own most of the company, uh, and most of the proceeds of an initial public offering go to the Sackler family. So this is just an interesting background. It's deep in history, and what the company did in those early decades uh, 60 years ago is quite different, but it shows you that, as I mentioned, from the very beginning, the company would prefer not to say too much about themselves. One final footnote about the Sacklers, the two brothers that uh, inherited most of the company's uh, proceeds when it went public in 1972, the two Sackler brothers, their names have been very much in the news in recent months because of the opioid epidemic. And there's been long feature articles in Esquire magazine and The New Yorker and other publications because the Sackler family later made a a lot of money from their pharmaceutical company uh, with the sale of opioid drugs. So the back human story is quite interesting. Uh, And the the paradox here is that today these companies, such as Acuvia, the former IMS Health uh, and others, its rivals, they know so much about us. They have uh, information on more than half a billion patients worldwide. And yet we know quite little about them. And they have been very secretive throughout their histories about how they operate and what kind of information they gather.
2: Yes, and throughout the book, it seems like you encounter um, a lot of obfuscating and a lot of uh, difficulty getting some answers, like direct answers, I should say, to your questions about um, what these companies are doing with this data, um, especially public statements about that. And I'm wondering, why do you think uh, they've been so secretive about the use of patient data?
3: So, this market that I'm talking about that assists these the sales and marketing of pharmaceutical drugs is profitable to many people. So it's obviously great for the drug companies. In the past, doctors have uh benefited from relationships in which detailers or these salespeople would bring them lunch and dinner and take them out and and treat them very nicely. Uh there have been lots of money to go around. It was very profitable for the data uh mining companies. And and so There was little people, there was little incentive to help the patient of the source of the data. And often in the healthcare system, the patient is not actually the client. The client is the insurance company that's paying the bill, or it's the hospital or someone else. And because of the unusual way in which the healthcare system works, the patient's needs are not always foremost in terms of of, of catering to them and what they want to know. So this is why the companies have been secretive. And Officials who have talked to me, some current and some former, said, look, it's a very complicated, sophisticated market. The typical member of the general public would not understand. They might become confused by all of these details. So we'd prefer not to alarm anybody by saying too much about it.
2: And so what are other commercial uses um, other than selling more tangible goods like pharmaceuticals or devices?
3: Well, th- I mean, that's primarily why these big multi- these big companies exist and primarily what they do. Um, they, however, in recent years have made the case, oh, we're going to help m- m- uh, medicine and science by having all of this data. This will lead to great breakthroughs in medicine, new discoveries of drug cures, and so on. Um, however, it still remains overwhelmingly about marketing and sales. It remains overwhelmingly a business. And I think the interesting debate ultimately to have is what is the best balance of information to make public, uh, to help scientists, to help the amazing researchers that are operating in in universities and institutes all over the world um, without infringing on the rights of individual patients. Uh, And that's the difficult balance. But again, this business today, the commercial gathering that I'm talking about is overwhelmingly about advancing sales and marketing, not about... Making medical mm-hmm. breakthroughs.
2: And I want to step back a little bit and talk about um, a paradox that you point out in the book about how, on the one hand, there is this overwhelming free flow of information that is just increasing um, from companies that collect patient data um, on the one hand. And then on the other, um, there is a restriction of the flow of patient information and just the difficulty that patients have um, and doctors have um, in communicating with each other and getting their medical records from one institution to the next. Um, And so I wanted to step back and just ask you about Um, some of the rules uh, and legislation that protect patient information and what has brought us to this situation, this paradoxical situation in which on the one hand, there's tons of data flowing almost secretly on on one side and then no data flowing uh, on the other. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what HIPAA is? You mentioned it throughout the book. What does it stand for? What was it originally um, uh, devised for and whom does it apply to?
3: So I'm going to get to HIPAA in a moment and just pick up on a point that you're making uh, just in the beginning of that question. And that is you as a patient or we as patients would like to have complete access to our information, but very few people do. So unless you've had the chance to live 40 years in the same place and work for the same university or special institution that you have the same medical system all the time, it's very unlikely that you have access easily to a complete set of medical records. And even then, sometimes you may have been sent out to different institutions. That's something that could be very useful for your doctor and medical providers, but almost everyone has the uh, experience of filling out, again, the same questions in a different doctor or different provider uh, across town. You go for a second opinion, you have to refill it, you have to do all that paperwork again. And again, it's very inefficient. And then it could be a life and death situation if you're traveling far from your home. Doctors don't have easy access to your medical records to know what prescriptions and, and past medical history you have. So that's, that's the problem on the, on the personal patient side. Now, since the 1960s, uh, there have been uh, very interesting efforts by different researchers, some of whom I talk about in the book, to cre- create this patient-empowered uh, system where the patient would have access to the records, would be able to easily make them available to their healthcare providers for the benefit of their own healthcare. The big commercial selling I'm talking about before, uh, that is not about helping the patients, that's about helping sales and marketing. So you as the patient, what you want, uh, the easy access by yourself and your healthcare providers to your information when you need it, that's not yet there. Uh, and what we may not want is the free sale of our information for other purposes that is out there. Now, what HIPAA does is it says that if you take off the name of the patient, if you take off the address and certain direct identifiers of who the patient is, then that information can be freely sold uh, without any restriction. HIPAA is, is the U.S. regulations about how medical data can be transferred from one place to the other. Now it is a complicated ruling, and even uh, rule, and, and various experts are often confused by what it means as well. But to go back to that blood test example, it means that that blood coming from inside of you that may be quite indicative of some medical issue that you have. That seems quite personal and intimate, but once the name is lopped off, once the address and phone number, a few direct associators of your name. Are, are taken away, that can be freely traded without telling you and without giving you any uh, say yes or no that you wanted to, to to trade that. So that's surprising to a lot of people when they learn that. Um, the problem is that over time, these records are accumulated. So your record from the blood test plus many other records over time in different places over years can be put together, maybe hundreds or thousands of pieces of different information. And that total uh, dossier about you can be commercially sold because it it abides by the US regulations, those HIPAA regulations that you talked about. So
2: companies describe that the data that they are trafficking in um, is anonymized, uh, as you mentioned, and de-identified, stripped of all those identifiers. Um, And you discuss in the book what You know, flaws there might be in that system, what vulnerabilities there might be in that system. So, what are the concerns about the limits of anonymization that you were just alluding to?
3: The problem is that over time, as you gather more pieces of information about the same person, even though they're anonymized without the name on them, they give clues as to who that person is. So, for example, if you had my medical records over the past uh, 10 years or so that just had my uh, date of birth or the year of birth, the places where I lived and my gender, that alone would identify me. And that is because I have lived in the following rather unusual city pairings. I've lived uh, in Fairbanks, Alaska, where I taught for a year last year at the university. Before that, I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And before that, I was in Belgrade, Serbia. So those three city pairings and my medical records alone would be enough because no one else my age would match that that, that three city pairings. So that's just a simplified example of how you could re-identify people. But people who've had less international exposure may have a country house somewhere, have occasional medical treatment there and then the main place where they live. And a pattern over time could uniquely make you identifiable. And there's been an interesting series of re-identification experiments in recent uh, decade in the past decade or so. Uh, one of the great researchers in this field is uh, my colleague at Harvard's Institute for Quantitative Social Science, Latanya Sweeney. In uh, more than a decade ago, about a decade ago, she was able to go through hospital exit records in Massachusetts and identify from these anonymized records the uh, a hospital visit of the then governor of Massachusetts William Weld who had fallen ill at a public appearance so the date of his hospitalization was known she matched those anonymized records with voter registration records which are available to the public and she found if you know date of birth gender and postal zip code of someone who is anonymized you're able to identify 87% of people in the united states So when so much data is easily available, when storage of information is so inexpensive, when computing power is so powerful, it is increasingly possible to re-identify people. And that's the risk of this big commercial sale, because this is something that may um, may not help patients. And I think ultimately the greatest problem is the problem of trust. Now, when we think about the recent revelations about Facebook and how some of their data was used by uh, uh, political consulting firms in in a recent election campaign in the United States and so on, the problem a lot of people had was a question of trust. They thought, oh, our data is not being used in that way, or I'm surprised it is being used in that way. Maybe I don't want to use Facebook or similar services anymore. Their trust in Facebook may have been diminished. And I think that's the greatest risk in this uh, big commercial sale because it is so secretive. Most patients and indeed many in the healthcare business themselves don't know about this business. And so the trust of the patients with their health care providers could be impacted when the knowledge becomes uh, more widely known. Uh, and that's the issue that I think ultimately we should be worrying about. We should have this open discussion. What should we do with our information when it comes to health data uh, in advance before some public scandal forces people to think about it in a very different way.
2: Have there been um, any documented um, harms uh, due to re-identification of data here or abroad?
3: So typically, the re-identification efforts have have been done by uh, outside researchers to see whether or not it is possible. And some of the famous examples include about a decade ago, uh, the internet. Uh, this was the, the the online movie company Netflix released their movie rental records, and they found that uh, and they they wanted to have a contest for million a million dollars, giving a researcher the opportunity to um, to come up with a better research engine. So what they did was um, two two outside researchers took the internet movie database, matched it with the Netflix anonymized viewer data ship. And they were able to identify people in that. So in other words, if you just knew what uh, that person, one, two, three, four, five, saw all of these movies over the past year, it would seem impossible to identify that person just based on a random set of movies. But because of outliers and matching it with another database that might have names, they were able to identify them. Uh, AOL around the same time released search records anonymously, what people search for, and found Uh, and and that was for social science researchers. It won't be interesting to see what people look for on the internet. Uh, Some reporters from the New York Times uh, took that information and were able to identify a, a woman in the South based on what she was looking for. And she was looking for things like dog that urinates on everything and 60 single men and other things that was somewhat intimate. And they were able to identify her and her picture appeared on the front page of the New York Times. In the world of medicine, there has been, in recent years, an interesting case in South Korea. Uh, A a person who worked for one of the middleman data companies connecting pharmacies with the medical system uh, was concerned about how that company was selling to IMS Health and others the data of patients without patients knowing about it. So he came forward and contacted a a prominent local television journalist, a former brain surgeon, and made uh, various data files available. And uh, some scandals and reports uh, resulted in an investigation and a lawsuit happened. I later took that data set, which was anonymized patient data, uh, which was then sold commercially, and I shared it with my colleagues at, at, at Harvard, the, the great team at the Institute for Quantitative Social Science and Latanya Sweeney, and she and her colleagues were ra- ra- rather easily able to re-identify the people within that data set. Um, And the pattern of encryption was quite simple, that zero was one, uh, two, um, and so on. Zero was one and, uh, I'm sorry, zero was A, uh, one was B, and so on. And it only changed on odd and even. So it was a very simple encryption pattern. uh, And that was a rare case in which we actually had access to data that was uh, used by commercial providers. So... That's what we know so far. There have been, of course, many uh, hacked uh, accounts of medical data coming out, and, and, and Primera and other companies have, re- have revealed that some of the information about people who are insured by them have been hacked. Um, so there is this longer-term risk. There has not been, however, a case where someone had a huge data set re-identified massively and put it out there. Um, but I don't think we need to have that data, that, that massive Uh, embarrassment before we have this discussion. And that's why I wrote the book ahead of time.
2: And how are things different in uh, Europe or parts of Asia, as you wrote about, when it comes to the commercialization of patient data?
3: In the big picture, what's interesting is that there is a worldwide trade in patient data. And it differs by different countries. I spent time in Europe and in Japan and Korea uh, for my research here. So even countries that... uh, Pride themselves on being very private, uh, such as Japan, in terms of their handling of, of sensitive information, do indeed have this uh, sale of patient data, often without patients not understanding what's going on. Germany, which prides itself on its protection of individual patient information, does have a sale of uh, pharmacy records and other things. In some countries, such as Germany, there's less of a sale. They don't have uh, in many. They don't have in Europe, for example, these doctor. Identified profiles sold by commercial companies. Those are those profiles used by drug companies to individually target doctors uh, of, the, of specific drugs based on what they prescribe. So it differs according to the different places. And, and in Europe, uh, later in May, there are new data privacy protections that are coming into force. Uh, it remains to be seen exactly how they'll uh, work in practice, but they. They are aiming to give uh, more knowledge to individuals and more say to individuals as to what happens with their data. And in general, I think that's a good approach. I think to let people know what's happening with their information and let uh, them have a say in what goes on uh, is a great approach, especially when it comes to our most intimate data, which is our medical data. So as I mentioned before, there is uh, a great deal of research that happens in medicine with very dedicated, hardworking and, 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 and intelligent researchers, people may want to assist their efforts by sharing their data with those people. Um, and I think that we should encourage such sharing of data. We should give people that option, but it should not be forced upon anyone by commercial providers who are mostly about selling things. So in order to know about those options, you need to know... <laughs> that there is the sale, you should be g- given the choice whether or not you want your information shared. And if you do, you should have that choice. The same way you have the option as an individual to give to charity, um, no one forcing you to give to charity, no one tells you what companies to give to, but uh, you should be saluted if you do, and you'll have that choice as to what charities you want to. And I think the same should be true with medical data.
2: Mm. So, what do you think consumers or I should say patients um, can do to protect themselves or have more control over the use of their personal heath- health data in this climate?
3: So this is quite difficult. So in my first book, What Stays in Vegas, I was talking about what could you do if you wanted to prevent data brokers from getting your information for, for sales and marketing of things not related to, to, to data to, um, to medicine? Uh, And there are some things you can do when it does not involve healthcare data. The problem is with healthcare data, you often have little choice. You could look around and find a doctor whose uh, healthcare system does not sell patient data. And there's some that don't sell the data. There's some that do. You could look for an insurance company that does not sell patient-level data. Um, But again, it's highly tricky to do. I, as an experiment, once called around a dozen different doctors in the Boston area before I found one that had a healthcare system that did not sell it. Uh, You could shop around for your insurance, but that's often difficult because your employer may not give you that choice. Uh, You may have to go to a certain hospital uh, for whatever procedure you need. Maybe that system is selling it. And most of the big drug chains in the United States do sell. The Walgreens and, and CVS, those companies do sell. And so often you don't have that choice. And that's why I think it's something best dealt with on a big societal level. There's one other kind of sale of data I should mention as well. A lot of what we've been talking about up to this point is the anonymized sale of patient data. So that means intimate information about you going back in time, uh, dossier about you, but without your name, without your address, without your direct contact information. There is also a parallel trade of information that does mention patients, their names, their conditions, their address, their email, their phone number used by marketers. That information comes from outside the doctor's office. In other words, it's not covered by the HIPAA rules on on the transfer of medical information. So, for example, it could be from a magazine subscription. You subscribe to Diabetes Today. Uh, They may sell that information commercially, suggesting that you have that condition. You may do various other kinds of shopping that may not be directly health-related, but that can be pieced together to give an insight into your health conditions. So the size of pants that you wear could suggest your girth or how, you know, whether you're um, a big person or not. The cable television package that you uh, subscribe to might match with the pants and other pieces of information suggest that you're one big fat guy sitting around watching television all the time, and thus you are some kind of health risk, perhaps we don't want to give you life insurance, or perhaps we don't want to give you a bank loan or other things of that nature. Um, so, if you look, and you can look on the internet for this, if you look for uh, data marketing lists of patients with uh, diabetes or incontinence or erectile dysfunction. Uh, you can buy those lists and they're gathered in in many different ways. Sometimes there are health surveys on the internet, or your employer may say, you should fill out this health survey, and it sounds very official, but often that information is used with your name to then market to you. Or even something innocent like writing in onto a web page and saying, I visited this hospital, Dr. Jones did a great job of help, help cure me of this problem, and you really want to thank the doctor, that information can be harvested by outside marketers and put into your file, and then that information sold. So there's this these two realms of this commercial trade. One is the anonymized data that I talked about. The second is this name data uh, gathered from information not protected by HIPAA. And then there's a third sort of combo variety of the two in which sophisticated marketers figure out who are the most likely people to suffer from conditions. So they may figure, for example, men in Southern California from the age of 60 to 72 that have this much money that live in these kind of places that have these social attributes are the most likely market for this medical condition. And then you, if you match that profile may surprisingly receive in the mail uh, some kind of solicitation or email or a phone call saying, uh, we think you suffer from this disease, we can help you with it, here's the conditions. And you may, you may be quite shocked that they know or seem to know anything about you but it's like a sophisticated uh, guess based on the merging of these two different data sets.
2: And as you mentioned, um, there's this concern that uh, this data that's, Brought together to uh, identify individuals with certain conditions could be used in a discriminatory fashion, whether that's with um, denying insurance coverage or maybe employment um, or other uh, aspects related to people's advancement in their lives or careers. And I was wondering are uh, these uh, data and the information gathered about? Folks um, covered or protected under either the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, um, or uh, employment discrimination laws.
3: So basically, some things are allowed and some things aren't. So in the United States, for example, you can deny life insurance based on the uh, information that they gather, and if it's out there, for information from data brokers, they could use that. Uh, under our current healthcare rules you are not allowed to discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. Um, that could change in the future if the, the the healthcare system was again changed in the United States, so that uh, information about you or what could be gleaned could be used to change pricing or or to deny you coverage entirely. That's not the case right now, however. Um, other things that people suspect happen are harder to document. So, if there are two employees, uh, but there's only one promotion to give, do healthcare considerations come into play? Occasionally, I'll meet people who privately say yes, they do, and I have done that. But it is not allowed. You're supposed to give. Um, you're not supposed to use that information. But people often know. And so, if there's two roughly equal employees, but one is sick more than the other, have have grimmer prospects on the long-term, that may be a factor, that could be a factor in hiring. That's not supposed to happen, but sometimes it does. Could banks use the information in a sophisticated ways? I've met bankers who tell me it would be great if we knew the people were about to die, because then we wouldn't give them loans. Um, That's not supposed to happen. It makes logic sense from a banker's perspective, but you as the individual may not want that information in wide circulation. I saw a reference to an article yesterday about electronic cigarettes that data uh, may be collected in one new product recently introduced about what people are smoking by the electronic cigarette. So this uh, this Internet of Things, the interconnected uh, devices to the Internet throughout our home, whether it's various sensors of when we come and go uh, or a frying pan that has information about what you're frying or a pillow that knows when you're awake and asleep, all of these things that abstractly may seem pretty innocuous when pieced together could be part of this vast world of information that might be used in discriminatory ways, certainly something we need to discuss as that world increasingly descends upon us.
2: Not to be too cynical, but it sounds quite bleak, actually, the picture that you paint about increasing information flows um, you know, steady uh, lack of transparency about where that information is going and how it's being used. Not much we can do about it because there's not really much choice in um, in the doctors we see and then the technologies that they use. Um, and so, I'm wondering: um, is this just a new normal? Is the is the concept if privacy as we understand it? outdated. Um, how are you thinking about that in terms of just larger cultural shifts and how we understand that?
3: So in the big picture, so much of the technological uh, developments have been great. They have improved our lives, everything from cell phones to all the devices and, and in the world of medicine, all the new devices that help save lives and keep people living longer and more healthily. There is so much to be thankful for in this technological realm. Um, what we're talking about is the darker sides, the unintended consequences often of that. So if your app on your cell phone encourages you to walk more often or exercise more often, that's quite positive. The darker side though, is this sharing of data if it happens without you knowing about it in ways that you don't welcome. Uh, And I think of it in the similar kinds of ways as some other technologies have developed in the past. So when the automobile was first introduced, there were no seatbelts and many people died or were injured, many thousands of people over time, before they became a standard feature in automobile. Now, the automobile has revolutionized life all over the world. It has been a great improvement in transportation. No one was intending to kill people by inventing these devices, but there was this unintended side consequence. And the world of data is similar to that. There's so much positive happening um, in the world of medicine and the non-world of medicine when it comes to data, but there is this darker side of things that can be happening from uh, hacking to outsiders using it for ways that we may not want, maybe it's discrimination, maybe it's just marketing that we don't welcome, and that's what we need to talk about and discuss as a society. Um, And part of the the discussion is what is the best balance of sharing this health data to help advance science and medicine with protecting the rights of individual patients? So to my mind, the first step in having that discussion is understanding the trade of the market. You can't have an informed discussion if you don't know what's going on. That's why I wrote Our Bodies, Our Data, this book, uh, and that's why I'm happy to speak about it. And then you can decide, well, this is kinds kind of information we may want to protect. This is some that we don't. Um, I think many people don't understand the trade in medical data in particular. Many people understand that information on Google and Facebook is used to market to you. They have some understanding of the ways those things work. Medical data is far more complicated. And so before we say, well, here's the new normal, we accept uh, the the free uh, commercial um, transfer of our data whenever it happens. Uh, I think we should have the discussion, decide what are we as a society comfortable and what the United States decides to do might be different from Canada or Japan or somewhere else, but it's a conversation each place should should have to to decide. Uh, And again, back to that question of trust, because you want to trust the system. I want to tell Dr. Dana everything that's on my mind about my health conditions so that I get the best possible care. Uh, I don't want to have to hide things from my trusted healthcare providers. Um, So I think people will be concerned about privacy. The recent Facebook scandal shows that although people are willing to share widely on Facebook, uh, if the information is used in certain ways and and, and put together with different information, there comes a point in which people are uncomfortable or disappointed uh, or unhappy about it. And I think that will certainly be true with medical data. And the other risk and the other kind of related conversation is the uh, protection of medical data, because there has been an upswing in recent years of hacking and and access to medical data, which again, then will threaten other kinds of anonymized information, if you know that. Uh, There's a lot more that can be done to protect medical data uh, in, in that world as well. So these are all things we need to talk about and think about to best advance medicine while protecting the rights of individual patients.
2: And you do describe in the book a few efforts um, legal efforts, uh, legislative efforts um, to change the way or enable uh, patients to control their data. And I was wondering if you could just describe this briefly and um, if they've led anywhere.
3: Well, first was, we talked about this paradox of medical data that you don't have access to your own files, while, outside marketers do. Now, there have been some efforts to give patients access to their own files, a central depository. Uh, Microsoft has Health fault and they have spent hundreds of millions of dollars, and only a few million people have signed up. Google thought, well, we can do better than that, uh, and they had a, a Google health effort, and they shut down some years ago already because it wasn't getting enough traction. There are some other efforts as well, and pretty regularly people contact me and say, I have a great idea. We should empower patients to have access to their data, and if they want to sell it, they can sell it. Uh, but it, it, it's difficult to get that kind of effort moving. So that's, that's the difficulty on empowering yourself. The other thing is in order to, to halt the trade or to, to give patients some kind of say, we do need a change in the rules. Uh, for example, uh, information that's intimate about you that's anonymized, maybe that should be protected as well. So should your blood test results or your urine test results or your skin t- tissue samples, should that be available for commercial sale without you knowing about it and without you having a say in that? It still seems pretty intimate. The same way if I were to photograph you naked and take your head off the picture, if I was to circulate that, maybe you wouldn't be identifiable, but you might feel, well, that's pretty intimate information. I'm not sure I want that out there in wide circulation. And so maybe some of the information that was allowed to be circulated under the HIPAA rules should now, 20 years or so later after the rules were written, maybe they should now be Uh, better protected given the advance of computing.
2: Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this difficult um, and very detailed investigative work on this topic. It's really, really important. Um, And I think we're still learning so much more about it. Um, And I'm wondering, what are you turning your attention to next?
3: So I think there's more to do on this topic, and I've only, uh, of this vast field of the world of, of personal information, I've only been able to uncover some things, right about some things, and there's been great other reporting, other books, and other, other things. So in the future, I'd like to continue looking at this topic. I, again, this balance between all the great things that happen with the advance of technology and all of the unintended side consequences that do happen, unfortunately, when data is so easily available. So I'm looking at at some of those topics to see where that will lead next.
2: Great, thank you so much for that. Um, where can uh, either concerned patients um, or physicians go to to learn more about um, this general issue and conversation and, and changes that are being made?
3: So, well, my website, adamtanner.news has some links to to the books and some past articles I've written. There are some uh, privacy, uh, privacy and, and patient groups. There's uh, patient uh, patient privacy rights uh, based in Austin, Texas. Dr. Deborah Peel. She's someone who, for many years, has looked at this issue. But at the same time, I think people should also look at some of the claims of the data mining companies who say their efforts help science. So look at some of the web links that they provide to articles that have used the information uh, and see what what kind of information has been uh, used and how it's being used, because there's a, a difficult discussion to have. What is the balance? And I don't think I have the perfect answer. So there's lots of different kinds of information to have. But people should also ask their health care providers. You go see the doctor, the pharmacist, you might ask them, hey, have you heard about this? What are your thoughts about it? Um, because there are many different uh, points of view with people will have different uh, insights and, and uh, depths of knowledge on. So it's a discussion. I certainly encourage people to Um, to have. And and through my website, adamtanner.news, you can be in touch with me as well. So um, those are my thoughts.
2: Thank you so much. That's so great. Um, So we've been speaking with Adam Tanner on his new book, Our Bodies, Our Data. Um, I think you should check it out. Uh, It's really informative and it's a great start to a really important conversation that we're having both inside and outside of medicine. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Medicine. If you want to learn more about Adam Tanner, you can follow him on Twitter at Datacurtain. That's D-A-T-A-C-U-R-T-A-I-N. Or visit his website, adamtanner.news. Once again, I'm Dana Greenfield, and you can find me on Twitter at Dana Gfield or at New Books Med. Get in touch with any questions, comments, or reading suggestions. And thanks for listening.